Welcome back to Keeping It Current. This week's episode has a different feel about it, as we've had some severe budget cuts. It's with the deep regret that I announced that the following features of the show have been cut. Caller on the line, as we now don't have enough money to pay for the phone contract, so that will be replaced with Jacob Breed's advice on how to woo a female woman. Well, I think that's quite the improvement. And you see, Thomas, the key to wooing a female woman is as follows. You've got to really understand what... No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, Political Singathon has now been cut, as we don't have enough money to pay someone to write a song for us. And that will be replaced by... Me singing my favourite song on repeat. Let me go. I don't know the rest of the words. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're there at home, please help me. Please do. Okay. We will march on and continue, as in the words of Billy Ocean. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. This week we'll be talking about austerity, as you can tell. I chose that topic as it is very relevant to the current situation that the show is in. And this week's special guest is an actual real-life councillor. Yes, that's right, it's Penrith Town Councillor and uh, recently he's now Eden District Councillor. That's right, we're joined by Doug Lawson. And due to the budget cuts, I failed to hire a brand new political analyst. So guess who's back? Back again, Jacob's back. Please don't tell your friends, as it really damages my, you know, street cred. It's time to get cracking. First, we're going to give you the lowdown on what austerity actually is and the history of it in the UK. Basically, austerity is the aim to reduce government budget deficits through spending cuts, tax increases, or occasionally both. The first austerity measures in the 21st century were brought in after the 2008 recession by the government. This led to David Cameron campaign to end years of excessive government spending in the lead-up to the 2010 general election. When David Cameron's Conservative Party went into coalition with Nicholas Liberal Democrats in 2010, the austerity programme was initiated. Jacob, do you think that this was the only way to reduce the government deficit? Well, that's a question, Thomas, and that, that is a question, and that's a question. Yes, it is a question. <laughs> but really now it's being played out. You know, I, I think in, um, in 2015, you really didn't have this debate around austerity. In fact, Labour uh, and Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, realising their perceived weakness on the economy, um, were, were, were basically pledging to mirror conservative economic policy. So it only came with a 2017 election and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto, which proposed um, really quite high tax increases and spending increases, but people started to question truly austerity, and perhaps you would say that's because the impact of almost a decade of austerity uh, became known. There's a couple of interesting things to say, and I'm, I'm not an economist, um, I'm not a lot no, of things. No, 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 you're not. Um, but in the 20... So in, in 2008, financial crisis, uh, the government... Oh, no. crisis. Crisis. The government bailed out a couple of the banks, and, um, uh, and they had big spending increases to try and stimulate the economy. Now, it, there is a near consensus, it's my understanding, that uh, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling did a good job responding to the crisis. Um, but in those years, I, I think most people would tell you that, my granddad would tell you that, and he is a Tory through and through. Um, but that did lead to a big deficit. And um, in the long run, it would be simply unsustainable. So going into a 2010 election, 
In terms of the economy, the three big parties, Tory, Labour and Lib Dems, they were all promising spending cuts. Their policy on spending was all the same, austerity. Now there's a question, did it go on too long? Was it unnecessary to the extent to which the Conservatives, in bed with the Liberal Democrats, did the policy of austerity? And I think that's a question that is in the process of being answered at the ballot box, Thomas Ridley, of keeping it current. That's right. Thank you, David Bree, temporary political analyst. Of temporary? Keeping it, keeping Goodness it gracious. Okay, so uh, in his June 2010 budget, after coming to the position of Chancellor, George Osborne identified two goals. The first was to stop his face looking like plastic. Sorry, I didn't apologise. And the second was to stop him making, stop, stop looking like a clown. <laughs> okay, no, but the, really, actually, the first was the deficit should be eliminated to achieve a cyclically adjusted current balance by the end of the rolling five-year forecast period. And the second one was that the national debt as a, as a percentage of GDP would be falling. Jacob, do you think that these goals have been achieved or have they yet to be achieved? Um, it's my understanding, and uh, I've got to admit, I haven't looked at the statistics of that recently, because as you say, I am temporary, you know, I was given a call in last minute. It's my understanding that, um, yes, day-to-day uh, -day spending, so excluding uh, investment for the future, uh, was balanced, noting that that took longer than they thought. It, did, it kept on being pushed back, it did not happen. In the uh, by 2015, as they had first predicted, and then things have gone a bit haywire because uh, Philip Hammond has been loosening the spending taps, so to speak. You've got Brexit, the economic impact that. Let's just say that they have some very leaky spending taps. Mm. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I, I, I mean, spending uh, has increased somewhat after the 2017 general election, when the Conservatives were sent quite a clear message that. The public was becoming tired of a decade of, of, of austerity. Um, you also um, have the fact that Theresa May recently said austerity is over. It will be over. Um, and with Brexit as well, um, they are talking about, you know, you need no deal preparations, blah, blah, blah. So was it successful uh, for those first days? I don't know whether you think um, George Osborne still looks like he's got a plastic face. Um, but um, yes, you would say it yes, did, yes. broadly speaking, yeah. um, but um, but it wasn't an overnight revolution. I've got to say about George Osborne, I think he's a bit like Pinocchio, though. Every time he tells a lie, his nose gets bigger. You know. <laughs> okay, so in his speech in 2013, David Cameron, as we know, the Prime Minister and pig lover, revealed that he had no intention of increasing public spending once the deficit had been eliminated. And he has also proposed that the public spending reduction will be made permanent. Jacob, do you think that these promises were a catalyst of David Cameron's downfall? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question because. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, I think so. Because in 20... So, so there's something... Uh, different, different party systems. And there's something, the one-party system version 2. And that is basically the idea that, no, it's not, you know, communist USSR, where you've got the 
Communist Party and that's it. But that you have several different political parties that really have no meaningful difference in terms of a particular policy, so in, no meaningful voter choice. So it is, um, it is like a one-party system in that regard. And in 2010 and 2015, the voters were not given a very clear choice between Labour, the Tories and the Lib Dems about spending. Spending was going to be cut and remain low. 2017 was the first time that there was, a, you would say, a genuine choice and support went to Labour. Um, so you'd say then in 2016, Vote Leave, that Leave campaign comes along and they say £350 million a week to the NHS. Now obviously... That, I, I, I just think that's a false well, so claim, you know, especially with uh, a Conservative government obsessed with austerity, uh, really like... They have a shrine of austerity in the HQ or something like that. Yeah, you know, would they mean, really have pushed that spending up on the NHS? Would well, they really done that? Well, that's it's a very interesting point because first of all, the statement is it's not false because yes, we do send three hundred and fifty million pounds a week to the NHS, but it's misleading because we get a one hundred million pounds rebate, so we get a hundred million of that three hundred and fifty million just straight back like that. Um, but if you ask me, Thomas. The argument about the fact that we are a net contributor to the budget of the European Union, that is for the debate about the European Union. But as soon as you say, let's take that money and put it into the NHS, then you're talking about the policy on the economy, the policy on public spending on the NHS, and that's what kind of tapped perhaps into this, into this feeling against uh, David Cameron's austerity measures. Of course, um, there were other factors as well, but at the time, 47% of people did believe that statistic. It clearly resonated. It was one of the uh, overwhelming memories of the referendum. And it's, the referendum loss was what forced David Cameron to go. So, I mean, there, it was a perfect storm of things which caused a, bre which caused a Brexit loss um, for Cameron. Um, but I think austerity and the way that vote uh, leave tapped into that uh, was certainly one of them. Yeah, so by 2016, George Osborne uh, was able to deliver a budget surplus by 2020. But after the result of the EU referendum, as you have previously mentioned, Jacob, he revealed that this option was no longer available. The next Chancellor comes along, and Mr Philip Hammond retained the aim of a balanced budget but abandoned plans to eliminate the deficit by 2020. It was later speculated that the period of austerity had ended in 2016, but departmental budget reductions in 2017 meant that this wasn't the case. Following the 2017 snap election, Philip Hammond confirmed that austerity would continue then during 2017 and overall budget surplus and day-to-day -day spending was achieved for the first time since 2001. This fulfilled one of George Osborne's targets, but it was two years late. And then in the 2018 autumn budget, Philip Hammond abandoned plans to achieve a surplus by 2022 to allow an increase in health spending and tax cuts. Philip Hammond then said that the era of austerity is coming to an end. Jacob, do you think that this is true? Um, uh, yes, yes, I think it is true. Um, I think, um, but the Tories know it's got to be true, um, because they're losing that argument at the minute. You know, we are 10, 11 years on 
from a financial crisis. People don't want to still be feeling that squeeze. And perhaps you would say that squeeze is more acute after you know, the effects of five, six, seven, eight years of austerity have become known. So I think the Tories realise that electorally it's unsustainable and you, you're starting to see that, you know, extra money announced for the NHS, um, uh, bits and bobs there, the promise of some sort of Brexit dividend. Um, and of course, if it's not the Tories who stay in power, if it's Labour, then good God, austerity will be a uh, long ago for. I think austerity will disappear from the dictionary, never mind disappear from the political spectrum. Mm, although, although equally there will be some very strong opposition to uh, Mr. Corbyn and his spending spree. So who knows? And then, you know, let me just throw something into the ring. Change UK, the independent group, what's their economic policy? You know, they're moderate Labour people, we, moderate... We, that's the thing we don't know because when you say there's, um, you've got your eight Labour MPs, you've got your three Tory MPs, and you've got Anna Subray, I think she backs austerity, she likes it. And uh, obviously Chukaroo Muna hates it, so how are they going to agree on something like that? Exactly, because the thing that unites them at the minute it's is... Brexit. It's Brexit. I, it's a dislike of the current two-party system, and it's Brexit. But clearly they feel that they, that they can work something out. Perhaps there is an understanding that some of them thought austerity was right, for 2010, some of them thought it wasn't, but perhaps now they think, no, you've got to increase spending a little bit. Um, I mean, I, you've got to say they look like quite Blairite policies, you would think. Um, yeah. You would imagine they don't want to give t- lots of tax cuts to the rich, but again, that's just speculation. Um, but I, I, I would say I think the age of austerity of the era this decade is coming to a close. So now we're going to talk about the effects of austerity. So austerity hasn't had the best effects, as even though it's doing a good thing by reducing the deficit, this, is ha- this has come hand in hand with public services facing severe budget cuts. An example of this is the police force, as more police officers have felt stressed over the past few years than there ever has been. This is down to the long hours they have to work and the demand that their job entails. This is down to the fact that there isn't enough money for the police to hire more officers due to the police's budget being cut. So do you think that austerity is the cause of the increase of police officers' mental health problems? I mean, again, I can't profess to be an expert, um, but... Um, that's why you're temporary. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm temporary, as I'm constantly reminded. Um, I mean, you know, they tell us in science causation doesn't... Uh, or correlation that's doesn't necessarily mean causation in maths as well, but it seems to make logical sense it seems to make logical sense that if you have fewer police officers, which means that police officers are having to work more and their resources are more stressed, then you can imagine that that be very stressful. And one thing, one thing I would say is that um, conservatives would argue very passionately that under under Labour and under previous governments, a lot of the higher spending. It was wasted, it was unnecessary. Uh, I remember Mr Fellows was telling us that he had a friend who worked for a council who was literally, it was his job to sit in front of two computer screens each day and he was being paid 40 grand a year to do it. And so, you know, austerity, the positive effect, apart from balancing the budget, is that... um, it would, oh, the idea is that it would make organisations like schools, like hospitals, like the police more efficient, cut out waste. But there's a point at which the vast majority of efficiency has been achieved, the vast majority of waste has, has, has been chucked in the bin, put down the toilet, and then if you keep on going, you just stretch it and stretch it and stretch it. 
And I think what what that, that thing is with the um, with the police, you would say it's the same with many many in the public sector. With yeah, yeah, teachers in particular, with, teachers, with, with health as well. Yeah, doctors, um, nurses. You're thinking that as well. Yeah. So and, and because of course, sorry if I could just say that um, not only have the number of you know nurses, teachers, etc. been cut uh, because of budget cuts, but their uh, their wages have been frozen. Uh, some of them are no longer frozen. I think some of them still are, but frozen at a one percent pay increase per year, which is obviously below in inflation. So it, in in effect, they're get they've been getting pay decreases for this increased work. Yeah, so, speaking about the health service, austerity has had a huge impact on the NHS. Uh, well, and as a result of this, resources are stretched. But that isn't in, even including the impact of Brexit. People have been waiting for ages at health centres and there's less and less beds. This results in people getting sent home without care plans and some may even still be ill. Jacob, do you think the NHS's recent struggles is all down to austerity or is there other factors at play? No, I don't think it's all down to austerity because I think um, you can have a well-funded service that is of a poor quality and to an extent you can have a to an extent you can have a less well-funded service that is of better quality. You know, all the money in the world can't make all the pay increases in the world can't make a terrible teacher a great teacher. All the pay increases, all the resource increases of computers and whatnot can't make a bad syllabus at a school, a good syllabus. And I think the same is at, at the health service. Um, but I think absolutely it stands to reason if you've got, you know, if you've got fewer, fewer doctors, fewer nurses, and they're, they're feeling more tired, they're feeling few, more stressed. Fewer beds. Fewer beds, fewer yeah. beds. Um, then, then absolutely. Because you do, you, get, you see, you see on television programs, you see even if you go to the hospital, you see people like waiting in like in like reception areas and just like waiting there, waiting for a bed. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty. I don't know. It's not. Uh, you can say offset's problem, but you can say it's just been mismanaged a bit. Well, I mean, you did have the uh, health and social care bill in 2012 which started the reorganization of the nhs which um there were some progress? fundamental flaws in that but by the time they were realized and nick clegg put the brakes on them um, a lot of the reorganization was already in progress so you know these things can't help but um, at the end of the day you need a hospital needs beds a hospital needs staff and if you're cutting beds and cutting staff or if they're being forced to by getting a lower budget then you know, I can't imagine it having a very positive effect. Yes, and if George Osborne was going there with his hands, you know, if he was cutting beds, I hope he got pricked with one of the mattress springs. <laughs> Harsh words there from Thomas Ridley of Keeping It Current. Uh, sorry, George, if you're listening, but you're probably not. There have also been massive cuts to the welfare benefits as well, and this even led to the resignation of the Work and Pension Secretary, Ian Duncan Smith, in 2016. This shows that austerity isn't just something that was brought in to reduce the deficit. It is something that has damaged the livelihoods of many people across the country. And it's more likely to be people that are struggling for money that have been affected, really. That, that's something you've got to think about. And obviously you're saying, I, I say about Ian Duncan Smith and obviously working pensions, you're thinking like, if there's not going to be any, uh, like, any benefits to these people, say, if you got something like a really good program called I Daniel Blake, 
is a film by Ken Loach. It's absolutely fantastic. And they're talking about is this man who comes back from, I think he's had a heart attack or something like that, and he comes back and he can't even get benefits. And it's like he can't get to work though. It's yeah. And uh, funding and education has also been cut. This has resulted in some schools only having four-day weeks. I mean, to talk, sorry if I could just quickly say about the benefits. I mean, um, you had a situation in 2010 where the richest of rich families, you know, your Camerons and your Osborns, were giving benefits for, for children. And so you understand that when things are tight, uh, even when things aren't tight, that seems wasteful, you know. They don't need that help up, they don't need that universal um, welfare coverage. But equally, uh, and equally, you have the whole absolute farce with uh, the rollout of universal credit, where people who are more than entitled to get uh, benefits have been put onto this new system, uh, and it's taken six weeks to kick in, and they've not had their benefits for six weeks. And that's not because you know that money isn't there, that's because this is a, a very bodged rollout. So, so again, austerity, it's too simplistic to say austerity is the only reason. Um, you know, in, in one way, austerity made it more of a focus system, which most people would agree was a good thing. Equally, a lot of the, the problems are coming from universal, from the universal credit, universal credit which, is, which is not directly linked to austerity. But equally, if you're putting less money into benefits, then some people, some people who really do, really do deserve it, will be struggling awfully and I mean it's unquestionable that that's happening. One thing, one thing that I do like on a, you know, on a, on a Friday night after a hard week at school I uh, put up my feet and watch The Last Leg um, you know, to be recommended and um, two, of, two of them yeah, have uh, Adam Hills and is it Alex Brooklyn? Yeah, they, yeah. they, 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 um, they both got disabilities yeah. yeah they do and so they talk very passionately about this and you know you understand that you don't want to have benefit fraudsters, but equally um, the means tests that have been introduced, and they were introduced, I believe, under the Labour government at the end of uh, their, their term. You know, often very, very dehumanising in the pursuit of of cuts, which I think now the country has no appetite for when we're seeing the, the destructive effect of them. Yeah, so I go back on the education. Uh, you get some schools who are struggling to even by textbooks and uh, for a whole class group and if you can't like have that the resources then it's surely going to hamper children's education and their learning mm, I, uh, and do you think that the impact of austerity is still being felt in education objective i i, I think inevitably so i mean you know personally we had we had um, French last year, the new course as well, so um, when school budgets were shrinking, uh, the new syllabuses were all coming in requiring new textbooks and whatnot, and our school didn't have enough money to get the new textbooks, so that meant we were working off photocopies, uh, some of us had to buy them ourselves, but obviously not everyone can be doing that, and you know, fiddling, fumbling around with black and white small photocopies, it's... Um, Obviously, it's going to waste time. You're not going to have all the resources you need. 
Um, and as well, as teachers, you know, class sizes are growing, teachers are getting more stressed, you've got other, again, non-austerity things, like the sheer amount of data they're having to input for Ofsted and what you do da. Um, and the point what is... That? That, I've never heard of them before. What you do da? Well, from Ofsted or whoever. Please, and, somebody and could since, come and help me to find out what you do da is. I, I, mean, search, I won't Google that. I bet, Siri, I bet even Siri or Alexa doesn't even know the answer to that. Alexa knows everything. Um, she knows your darkest secrets, Thomas. Um, but, but yes, yeah, so since 2010, secrets, the 1% uh, pay uh, per year freeze. And it makes sense that, you know, it can't go on forever. Teachers are becoming increasingly demoralised. And, um, you know, many of them leave the profession for other reasons as well. But, you know, for the, the extra pressures because of austerity. So now it's time to talk about the public response to austerity. There's been a lot of public uproar due to austerity, as when services are being cut, it leads to people potentially losing their jobs. This is why it was such a shock that the Conservatives won a majority in 2015, as the public weren't particularly too keen on austerity. Jacob, do you think that the public kind of let the Conservatives off too easily when they voted them into government, uh, as they say, a majority government in 2015? Well, I think, um, as I was saying before, the thing to note is that Labour then weren't advocating huge spending increases. Um, Labour literally were mirroring the Conservative economic policy because they thought any alternative they, they put up wouldn't be perceived to be credible enough. So there is a strong argument to say that, frankly, the country uh, didn't have... Uh, have an alternative really you know if you're going to vote for one of the big parties and big parties on the economy are all advocating for austerity then arguably the country didn't have, have, a, uh, have a choice what I would also say and this is something actually that Jeremy Hunt has recently come out and said is that um, George Osborne and uh, David Cameron they were talented uh, politically in being able to sell the messaging of austerity and that is something that quite simply Theresa May hasn't been able to do. If, I mean, Theresa May, she has some strengths. Undoubtedly, she has a very steely resolve. Um, she has a lot of weaknesses, and one of her biggest weaknesses would be her, you know, her public relations, her speeches, her rallying the troops, her relationship with the media. And perhaps that is what mi- what was missing. You know, if we still had David Cameron and George Osborne, obviously there wouldn't have been that snap election. But um, their confident pro-austerity messaging, which had worked for six years, would it have continued? to work, would they have continued to win that argument? And uh, that's the question. Or is it a case of the public thought, we've had this for too long, it's too f- far of memory, the financial crisis, and we ought to have moved on by now. And as well, maybe the effects were becoming better known. So, um, so in 2015, um, it's not a surprise that an austerity agenda won the election and perhaps people still thought it was necessary, but um, Cameron and Osborne certainly were able to sell it in a way that made but, it But what I'm surprised is that a lot of these places that are most affected, quite badly affected by austerity, do they go and vote Conservative? Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of, obviously in, in the North East, a lot of the... Um, Will vote, vote Labour, but but yeah, a lot of the um, 
Yeah, you think Carlisle? Do you think that could be affected by austerity? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, every, everywhere is affected by austerity. But you saw that equally, a lot of the, the poorer places in the country voted to leave the European Union, um, and, um, and that's a very similar thing. You could argue, perhaps, that it's a vicious circle. That you know, this lack of funding, the deterioration of public services, uh, and the idea that politicians aren't listening and are acting for themselves, uh, leads to a, a feeling of political disconnection and disenfranchisement which then causes them to, to you know keep on voting in this circle who knows mr ridley who knows yes who do you know i pick up on may's public relations uh, you said uh, previously in the program about uh, how she couldn't even do a speech without a teleprompter yes that is one of the biggest things that can you see like someone like tony blair with especially with like the uh, when speech when Princess Diana just died, you know, if oh you if you go watch that, you see how charismatic he was, and he didn't use a teleprompter. He just he just can't have said that. Obviously, he was prepared, but he he didn't need a teleprompter, did he? I mean, there's this other there's this other story as well. So that was in the 2017 general election. Um, May's team wanted her to film a two-minute video. They went on a I don't know. I think it was a two-hour train journey to get to a location to film that video. And then when they realised that she didn't have a teleprompter. Um, she said, no, I'm not doing it, and they went back. And this, this wasn't a 30-minute speech. This was a two-minute two minute quick clip for the old Twitter feed, which really shows her weakness and her, her lack of confidence. So there's another example as well that, um, you know, Theresa May had quite a hard early life in that both of her parents died when she was in her young 20s, I think. Um, and um, after she'd become Conservative, Prime Minister, her aides were telling her, you know, in what will be the first media interviews with you as the Prime Minister and the Conservative leader, they're going to ask you about your background, they're going to ask you about your parents. And she said, why are they going to ask me about my parents? I don't know what to say. And so then one of her aides, who had had a similar thing with parents dying when, when they were young, said how it made her feel. And then, to their amazement, May went out in the interview and said almost verbatim what this aide had just said. She just, she, she's not good at it when she tries and she doesn't understand the need for it as well. And so perhaps that's one of the areas where austerity has fallen down. It lost its messenger. Mm -hmm. Lost yeah. its messenger. Yeah, no, it's reason. Obviously, she doesn't seem to understand how people would uh, maybe connect to her more emotionally, seeing how like how she'd um, how the bad tough life it made me make the public more sympathetic and stuff like that mm. when she didn't seem to be have that sympathy she didn't seem to have the feelings that a normal well, I don't <laughs> say normal human being does but yeah but, he, didn't seem, he didn't seem to have that connection that other yeah. previous Prime Ministers have. Exactly. I mean, I think if you look at it, Blair... Especially, you think, Cameron and Blair. Blair and Cameron. You know, Brown suffered from the same thing that May suffered from. He wasn't the slick media operative that, that Blair was. But the almost the infuriating thing with May is that, you know, you see these glimpses of humour. She said after the 2017 election, well done, John Burke, on being re-elected as a speaker. At least someone got a landslide. I mean, that's funny. You know, she's got this history, this really sad history of her parents. She's got the fact that she loves cooking and you know there are glimpses of uh, she said she shed a tear after the 2017 general election when she saw the the, um, 
the results. You know, there are glimpses of a real human underneath. And I think most people would agree, even if she's not the most even if she's not the most exciting person in the world, she's a nice lady and you know she's a human. But she doesn't let the public see that side of her and that's been that, that's fatally wounded her, Thomas. Yes, maybe she was just um <coughs> malfunctioning. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so also there was a fierce response from the opposition parties at the time. Labour and the SNP in particular based their 2015 election manifestos around ending austerity. Did they? 2017. 2015. 2017 was Brexit, wasn't it? In 2015, I think, it's my understanding that Labour's manifesto uh, pledge on the economy was to mirror the Tories' pledge on the economy. Was it? Well, the SNP did, didn't they? The SNP did. We can agree on that, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, but do you think that uh, a lot of the things, like especially Labour in 2015, uh, when they're trying to focus on the negatives of the Conservatives' austerity scheme, do you think that um, like they they focus a bit too much on the bad points that the the austerity scheme has brought around? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's natural if you're opposed if you're a political party opposing austerity, you're not going to go and say, oh, but it's good because of this and because of this and because of this. But austerity and less public spending has resulted in lower taxes, and no one wants to pay more tax than they have to. Um, it's also undoubtedly cut out um, an element of. Uh, inefficiency and waste in, in certain areas, which again is a good thing, although it's probably gone too far, but you know, Jeremy Corbyn's not going to stand there and say that, even if he believes it, which I'm not sure he does. Okay, so now it's time for this week's special guest interview. So please welcome this week's special guest. He's a current town and district councillor in the local area. He's also stood for Parliament against Rory Stewart. Please welcome Councillor Doug Larson. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So, how did it feel when you got the news that you'd been elected as a district councillor? Uh, even though we knew kind of two weeks out that there was a fairly good chance that I was going to win it, um, it was still an amazing feeling. Just the, the kind of, yeah, the excitement, not only winning, but also being the first Green in the whole of the Eden District ever. You know, historically, that's quite a big thing. Uh, and obviously my uh, my friend Ali then followed up with seat number two, so there's now two of us. Um, but yeah, no, just an amazing feeling. I, I think everybody I spoke to, I said I was over the moon. Uh, and then I couldn't stop saying that phrase over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, uh, so it's like, there's what, there hasn't been one in so many years, and then it's like, when one comes on, the second comes along, it's yeah. like, what's it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's not in so many years, it's ever. There's, there's never, ever been a Green, green Council or an Eden District Council, ever. So, uh, yeah, very it, historic. As you said, you were quite confident about like doing quite well, but were you confident that it was going to be that big a margin of victory? No, no, you can never really tell. We, we knew it was going to be a low turnout, um, and we obviously had worked really, really hard. I was looking through my photos on my phone um, a few days ago, and uh, this time last year we were in Carlton Park picking up dog poo and, and litter and stuff. So, you know, that gives you an idea of how long we've, we've been working um, to, to kind of target the ward and make sure that everybody knew who I was and what I was up to and what I was all about. Um, we did a lot of canvassing, talked to a lot of people on the doorstep. A lot of people are very cagey about how they're voting, even the ones that, that I think probably were going to vote for me. Some of them, you know, they're, they're very private about it. So we, we couldn't tell for certain um, how many. It looked as though we had enough. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be that big a margin, though. So, like, as 
just in anything in politics, campaigning is a huge part. So, what what do you think was the best part of your campaign? I it, I, I enjoy talking to people anyway. I'm I'm very much a people person. Um, going out and actually meeting all of the people in my constituency and and being able to talk to them and find out what their issues were was was a big thing for me. Um, I think the best part was probably towards the end of the campaign. We put out enough information that people knew who I was and of course all the leaflets had my photo on. So I was knocking on, I was knocking on doors in the last few days, people that I hadn't had a chance to speak to yet and they were answering the door and saying, oh hello Doug. And they knew who I was before I knew who they were because they'd seen a photo of me or they'd heard something about something that I was doing in the area. So, so do you think that was a, like a big part of you being elected? Because I, I know as I live in the area, which you're now district councillor for, uh, because I know the, the Conservative, there's no Conservative uh, like uh, and the promotion material until the day before the election. So mm. do you think that was like a big part of... I think, yeah, I think that's had some impact. Um, a lot of people that we spoke to on the doorsteps were kind of um, very anti anything to do with politics um, it's very difficult to kind of t to help people to understand the difference between national and local politics to understand the difference between what a local politician can do for them locally uh, and, and what you know the, what the difference is between that and national politics um, there was certainly a lot of um, anti-conservative sentiment on the doorstep um, not just because of brexit and because of everything that's going on nationally but I think also locally a lot of people were very concerned about the master plan, um, so that came up a lot as well. Um, but there were a lot of other there were a lot of other things as well. Uh, most people, I think, I get the impression that most people will vote for somebody that they know and somebody that they know is active in particular. So, so being able to get out there and say to them, "Look, I've got this speed watch set up, so we're we're, we're watching speed limits on uh, the A six eight six past uh, past Carlton. We've got." Um, people out litter picking, you know, we're looking at local issues with fences and, and roads and potholes and all sorts of stuff like that. So to be able to go out and talk to people about that was very important mm -hmm. and I think people um, generally really appreciate that and when they go to the polls, even if they don't normally vote green, I think they probably would have said, well, do you know what, Doug's a nice guy, I hope, um, and, and, and would have voted for me. Yes, so, uh, like, why did you decide to ever get involved in politics? I've never been very good, and I think Kimberly said the same thing when you interviewed her, my wife. Um, never been very good at just kind of sitting back and letting things happen to me. Um, I, I feel, I, I, you could obviously tell from my accent that we're not Penrith born and raised, but I feel that this is my home now. Um, I, I came here a lot during my childhood. We've got family nearby. Uh, my, my kids are growing up here now. Um, and they will have the accent, which is interesting. Um, but I, I can't, I can't live somewhere and not give back. You know, I, I can't. I'm not that kind of person that can just sit back and say, "I'll just let all this happen." You know, so I see things like a couple of years ago, we saw the the major problems with the school funding, which is still going on, and that was affecting local schools. And I felt that we needed to do something, so I organised that rally in town with with the the, um, the parents and, and various other people involved in that. Um, because I wanted to give something back to Penrith, and yeah. and it's the same with with my time on the town council. It's about making sure that I'm looking after the place where I live and the place where my kids are growing up. Yes, uh, uh, what are you looking to get done while you're in the 
Eden District Council? Uh, well, number one priority um, is the thing that everybody's been talking about, which is the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, a hustings event a couple of weeks ago before the elections, uh, and it was very clear that all of the parties um, that were there were all very much in agreement that we need to do something and we need to do something urgently. There's a lot of things that we can't do at a local level, but there are also a lot of things that we can, and it's going to require a, a combined effort across uh, local governments and national governments. So. My first aim really is to make sure that we find a way to ensure that everything, every decision that's made in the district council, every change that's made, every house that's built, every road that's built, every, you know, every decision needs to be weighed against how does this affect the environment? Is this a positive or is it a negative? Because we need to get to a place where everything we do is positive or neutral. We, we can't make any more negative decisions. We can't build any more houses that are going to add to the the CO2 emissions, we can't do anything else that's going to in any way damage our environment. Mm-hmm. So that's going, to be, that's going to be the first priority. But then the other thing, in, in addition to that, is just to continue working with all of the people that have been kind enough to vote for me uh, to make sure that, that local issues are dealt with as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm not planning to be one of those councillors that gets elected and then vanishes. Um, I, will be, I will be out regularly talking to people to find out what things they need fixed. Because obviously it's very important, as you say, you see even in Westminster politics that you get a lot of people not representing who they're meant to be representing, and obviously I think that's an important part to the people. Yeah, yeah, and one and it's a very important part of, of my politics as well because the Green Party uh, very strongly believes that that their um, politicians should be allowed to do to do that to to have their own mind and to and to be able to speak to the people that they represent and to vote accordingly and to act accordingly. I know a lot of other parties talk about whipping their their members to, to vote a certain way. The Green Party doesn't do that, so so I'll, I'll always be free to to kind of you know say what what the people that represent that I represent want me to say. So, what's the most enjoyable part of being like a councillor? Um, I think the most enjoyable part is is when you can make a make a positive impact in somebody's life. Um, there there've been a few instances recently where simple changes that I've been able to get. Um, get moved forward by speaking to colleagues within the council um, have, have made a huge difference to people um, and there's a lot more of those to come I think that the, the speed watch is, a, is a, a prime example a lot of people were very worried about the speed of cars along that stretch of the A686 as it goes out of Carlton Village um, and, the, and other roads as well which we're going to be looking at as well and it was it was just great to be able to work with the police and find a way to, to hopefully you know show people how that how that's affecting other people's lives and to actually kind of put a, a spotlight on it and, and hopefully make a positive difference. Those kind of positive differences are, are what make being a councillor easier. Yes, so apart from the success of the election, what would you say has been your biggest success in politics? Uh, I've got to be honest, I don't think I'm going to find anything bigger than being the first green, green person on the Eden District Council in the whole history of, of Eden District Council. Um, Having said that, um, I, I think probably a close second is just kind of being involved in a general election. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very scary experience. Um, I've, I've got a lot of experience of talking to people and presenting, and you know, from through my day job, I, I spend a lot of time presenting to people and talking to people. I'm quite happy with that, but the the extra pressure of a a national campaign like that was mm-hmm. um, was was quite quite a, an eye opener for me. Uh, and also supporting Kimberly when she stood against Michael Gove as well. That was uh, that was quite an experience as well. 
So you say about the uh, general election campaign was. I just wanted to say about what was like the media sense, like the national press, was it? Like, was it any bigger? Like the local press, was it any bigger than it was last week when he got elected? Not really. No, there's there's not a huge amount of national interest unless people are uh, people that are involved in the in the election are are kind of major players. And although although Rory Stewart now is is obviously in the limelight, I think during the election he was perhaps a, a slightly smaller player and, and there, there wasn't that much national attention on him. Um, I, I got a lot of local attention uh, when we all did. Um, I made a lot of a lot of good friends and a lot of good contacts within the, the local media um, and obviously I've been talking to them over the last couple of weeks as well. But uh, yeah, no, nationally I don't, I, I don't, I don't think my paper, my uh, my face made it to the, the national papers. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of the local ones. But uh, so, what's the funniest moment that you've ever had in the, the, your political experiences? Funniest moment. Um, there was there was one funny moment actually while I was out campaigning this time round for the the district election. Um, I spoke to um, I spoke to somebody who asked me whether it was possible to get some trees moved. Um, which is which is quite an interesting challenge. Um, obviously, that's unlikely to happen. Um, and and I think the other one that that made me smile at the time, um, campaigning for for Ali Ross in Penrith North, uh, found myself. Kimberly took the kids and was was further up the road that we were we were leafleting, and I found myself on my own talking to a lady, and she looked at the she looked at the sheet that I was holding with Ali's photo on it, and she said, "Oh, is is it you standing in Penrith North?" And then she looked at the picture and said, "Oh no, it's your wife." <laughs> and uh, obviously, Ali isn't my wife, um, so, <laughs> so that was uh, yeah, that made me smile as well. Okay, so now we're going to play a new game. This game okay. is called Manifesto or Manifest No. Okay. As you ran for Parliament in the twenty seventeen election, I'm going to quiz you on the Green Party's twenty seventeen general election manifesto. Which I know inside <laughs> out, obviously. I'm going to read out several policies, and if you. Think it was part of the Green Party's 2017 election manifesto. You say manifesto. If you don't think that it was part of the Green Party's 2017 election manifesto, you say you say manifest no. Okay. Okay. So the first one is lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, Manifesto. Yes, that's right. Uh, For there to for a meat tax to be introduced. The amount of meat that we eat is a very important issue, and it certainly has an effect on the environment. But I don't believe that there was a there was a specific manifesto for that. So I'm going to say manifest no. Yes, that that's one. correct. Uh, this probably a bit of an easy one to have a second Brexit referendum. Uh, manifest no. Oh, it was manifesto. Was it? Yeah. Was it? Okay, <laughs> I know they were they were pushing for a people's vote on whatever the decision was. Okay, interesting. Uh, to uh, nationalise the railways. That's manifesto. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, to bring in a four-day working week. Again, I've seen policy. I've seen people talking about it. Um, but I'm going to say manifest no. It's manifesto. Is it? Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Oh. I, every time I find out something new about the Green Party, it makes me more and more convinced <laughs> I'm in the right place. <laughs> Okay, so now it's time to play one of like the regular parts of the show. It's now it's time for political. Would you rather? Okay. 
So all you have to do is to pick the politician that you prefer out of the two that I give you. Okay. Selection. So the first one is Gordon Brown or Nick Clegg. I think Nick Clegg. I'm, I'm disappointed I've not met him yet. He's reasonably local. So, um, yeah, no, I think Nick Clegg would be an interesting chap to have a conversation with. Uh, next one is Michael Gove or Jeremy Hunt. Uh, right, now I've met Michael Gove, but I haven't met Jeremy Hunt. Um, I think... I would like to have a long conversation with Michael Gove, particularly now that he has uh, some input into the environment issue. <laughs> David Cameron or Tony Blair? Mm, that's interesting, because they've both made some very, very strange decisions. Um, some of them very questionable. But I think I'd probably like to have a conversation with Tony Blair and ask him about the war. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon or Arlene Foster? Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, I think. She seems like a, a, a nice lass. I'd like to have a chat with her about some stuff. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May? Oh, goodness me. <laughs> I, I find Theresa May very dry. I don't... She doesn't... She might be different in, in real life, but I, she doesn't strike me as a very interesting person. Jeremy Corbyn seems to have a, a lot more about him, so I think, yeah, I'd have a chat with Jeremy. Ed Miliband or David Miliband? Oh, definitely Ed. He's got he's got a sense of humour. I follow him on Twitter. He's a very funny guy. Uh, Nigel Farage or Jacob Rees-Mogg? Goodness me, goodness me! Now then, I'm I'm not sure I could be in a room with either of them for very long without ending up in prison. Um, <laughs> Nigel Farage, I think I could probably have a pint with him. I could probably just about bear that. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's a bit too um, bit too snooty for my liking. George Osborne or Vince Cable? Oh, goodness. Uh, George Osborne's another one with a sense of humour. Yeah, I think I'd go George Osborne. Uh, this one should be an easy one for you. Tim Farron or Caroline Lucas? Ah, right. I still haven't met Caroline. My wife Kimberly has, but I haven't. So, yeah, I think I'd have to go with Caroline. Yeah. And then the final one is Chukka Amuna or Sadiq Khan? Uh, oh gosh, I've got a lot of time for both of those. I think probably Sadiq Khan. I think it'd be nice to find out some more about what he thinks. So that's all for your special guest okay. interview. Thank you very much uh, to this week's special guest, Councillor Doug Lawson, and congratulations again on being elected. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time for a summary of this week's episode. It's been a great show and we've managed to survive with these new budget cuts, haven't we, Jacob? Well, just about, just about. I mean, a couple of things fell off the wall, but we're still standing. Yeah, so, you know, the window shutters from Jacob Reed's squeaky voice breaks as well. <laughs> <laughs> the window shutters from Thomas Ridley singing of that song at the start. Okay, so next time we'll be talking about pressure groups and you can keep in touch via the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also email us at keepingcurrent at outlook.com. Sadly, that's the end of this week's show. Thank you very much to this week's special guest, Councillor Doug Larson. And thank you, as always, to Jacob Brewer. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Be sure to join us next time, where we won't be keeping it cool, but we will be keeping it current. Goodbye.